You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm also really proud to be an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you who are listening so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Ray Comenzo, who is a professor of medicine at the Tufts University School of Medicine, which is my alma mater, and director of the John C. Davis Myeloma and Amyloid Program at the Tufts Medical Center. Ray, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a real privilege to join you, Ken, and to uh, participate in this LLS podcast. We're going to really sort of focus today on AL amyloid, but I wanted to ask you first, can you give me and, and the listening audience sort of a broader view of that spectrum of amyloid diseases before we really focus down? Sure. Amyloid itself is a deposition of protein in a very uh, specific form as, as beta-pleated uh, sheets and fibrils. And ironically, there are normal proteins that form amyloid. Some of the hormones in the body form small amounts of amyloid because it's a great way to store protein. And if the uh, pathology, the pathophysiology exists to both store and to access amyloid, as it does in certain uh, organs, it becomes a, a functional protein. However, when amyloid forms as the result of abnormal proteins assembling into protofilaments and finally filaments, it can cause significant damage to the organs in which it deposits. There are approximately 30 to 35 different proteins that can form amyloid. The most common types of systemic amyloid are the result of immunoglobulin light chains that are abnormal, forming protofibrils that are toxic to the body's organs and that deposit as fibrils in the heart, the kidneys, the liver, GI tract. And the second type that is probably a little more common than immunoglobulin light chain amyloidosis is transthyretin amyloidosis. There are two categories of transthyretin amyloidosis. One is hereditary and the other is age-related. Hereditary amyloid is the result of mutations in the transthyretin gene that affect the stability of the transthyretin tetramer causing early dissociation of the tetramer into monomers, some of which are abnormal, misfold, and self-assemble. As an hereditary disease, that process is going on throughout life, but the point at which patients become symptomatic varies tremendously uh, based on linkages probably with other genes. The age-related form of amyloid occurs based on uh, historical information mostly in men over the age of 70. Although as we become more familiar with the basis for things like heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and spinal stenosis, we're appreciating more and more that the transthyretin form 
of amyloid is actually fairly common and that the spectrum of disease ranges from carpal tunnel to spinal stenosis to heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and rarely to involvement of other organs. Recently, treatments for hereditary amyloid were approved in the United States. Two companies have RNA silencing agents that have been approved to treat hereditary amyloid in both its neuropathic form and its, its cardiac form. And those agents are going to make a big difference in the lives of patients with hereditary amyloid. There is a third agent, Tefamidus, which is on the verge of being approved for age-related cardiac amyloid. So within probably a year, we'll have treatments for all the major forms of uh, amyloid, systemic amyloidosis. So really focusing on AL amyloidosis, are we missing the diagnosis? And if so, why? It's a very good question. I think the answer is yes, we are missing the diagnosis. Part of the problem is semantic. We tend to characterize plasma cell disease as myeloma or not myeloma. Myeloma, smoldering myeloma, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. These are clearly categories of disease. And we know that 1% to 2% of individuals over the age of 50 have monoclonal gammopathies. We know that about 10 to 15,000 patients are living with smoldering myeloma. And we know that an increasing number of patients are being diagnosed with myeloma annually, upwards of 25 to 30,000 cases a year in the United States. However, what we don't fully appreciate, I do think it's a function of how we think about diseases, what we don't fully appreciate is that there are uh, at least three silos, two that are very important for thinking about these diseases. One silo is the character of the plasma cell disease. Is it very proliferative? Is it a disease with certain genetic abnormalities? Is it a disease that makes only light chains and no intact immunoglobulin? So the character of the plasma cell disease is really important to assess. The second column is the pattern of organ damage in the patient and the question of whether or not the patient's symptoms and involved organs are related somehow to the plasma cell disease. In myeloma, we're all familiar with the CRAB criteria, hypercalcemia, renal disease, anemia, and bone damage. And those are the organs that myeloma can really impact. And we now have criteria for starting patients on therapy for myeloma that are independent of the CRAB criteria per se, because we know that patients whose light chain levels are involved versus uninvolved are a hundredfold different, have about an 80% chance of developing myeloma in the next two or three months. We know that patients with 60% or more plasma cells in the bone marrow who are asymptomatic have a very high chance, greater than 80% of developing symptomatic myeloma in the near future, whether it's two months or four months. And uh, we have developed an approach to myeloma, which is in some ways restrictive based on those criteria for starting therapy, CRAB criteria or the other two I've mentioned, or the MRI criterion of greater than one MRI visible lesion of, of greater than 0.5 centimeters. What we don't do is just live in that column of organ disease a little longer and keep in mind that the heart is involved in 
60% of patients with light chain amyloidosis. The kidneys are involved in 60% of patients with light chain amyloidosis. So that if a, a patient with a monoclonal gammopathy has some evidence of dyspion exertion, there are still hematologists in this day and age who would refer that individual to a cardiologist instead of making the connection between the monoclonal gammopathy and the patient's symptomatology. It also applies to renal disease. I have patients who have been followed for years by very good hematologists with NGUS or with a light chain a smoldering myeloma who have developed renal insufficiency. I get their records. Their EGFR has gone down by about 10 units a year for the past five or six years. And it's only when they become CKD3 that the hematologist sends them to the nephrologist. The light bulb doesn't go off. And, and that applies to many, many patients who are being actively followed by hematologists. We know that 7% of patients with smoldering myeloma will progress to light chain amyloidosis. And that 1% or 2% of MGUS patients who progress will progress to light chain amyloidosis. We just have to think of the diagnosis with respect to the pattern of organ damage. We now have biomarkers, for example, for heart involvement. So an MGUS patient who's seen annually could have a BNP or NT-pro-BNP checked annually. We know that the renal disease of AL amyloid is uh, manifested as proteinuria classically. Having a urine protein check annually in a patient in MGUS or every six months in a patient with smoldering myeloma is not a big deal but our colleagues haven't really incorporated these patterns of testing, and there's been some resistance in the myeloma world to adopting them. Let's focus on the biology. Is AL amyloid simply a subtype of myeloma, or is it really a distinctly different disease? So about 10% or so, maybe 10 to 15% of patients with myeloma do develop amyloid deposits that cause symptoms and organ damage. Approximately uh, 10 to 15% of patients with Waldenstrom develop amyloidosis. We tend to think of Waldenstrom's as an IgM-mediated process, and it is for most patients, but a significant fraction of patients with Waldenstrom's make light chains as well as an intact IgM, kappa or lambda. And those patients a diagnosis can present with amyloid-related organ involvement, classically the kidneys or the nervous system. And late in the course of Waldenstrom's, they can present with amyloid cardiomyopathy, which can be very difficult to treat. So it's a disease of the B-cell lineage in which B-cells as terminally differentiated plasma cells or as intermediate lymphoplasmacytic cells can make light chains that are themselves abnormal and can be toxic to organs and cause deposits of amyloid in tissues that, by a mass effect over time, result in organ dysfunction. It is a different disease in the sense that the mechanism of disease, the pathology of disease, is not proliferation or mass effect of cells. So myeloma is a proliferative plasma cell disease. 
the deposition diseases, both immunoglobulin deposition disease and light chain amyloidosis, are diseases in which the products of the clonal plasma cells cause damage in the body, even if the clone is not there in large numbers. So having a box to put patients in is useful, clearly, and having an understanding of the pathophysiology of these disease categories is useful. But indeed, we're talking about a universe of plasma cell diseases and a spectrum of organ damage that can occur as the result of masses of proliferative plasma cells. Myeloma classically can be, for example, extramedullary. You can get plasmacytomas in the soft tissues. You can even get plasmacytomas in aspects of the brain sometimes in patients with myeloma. Amyloid, on the other hand, is largely restricted to the bone marrow. There's no extramedullary component in 99 plus percent of patients with light chain amyloidosis, but it does its damage because of the toxic light chain, the toxic protein that the cells produce. Ray, I, uh, I was talking to our fellows here at the University of Maryland, and here we're, uh, I want to give you questions that they thought about, but were afraid to ask. Great. Uh, because, they, <laughs> <laughs> because they probably thought they should know the answer, and I sort of reassured them that maybe that's not the case. Okay, here we go. You ready? Ready. Number one, why such a small percentage of plasma cells in the bone marrow causing so much trouble? It has to do with the physical chemical character of the light chains that are produced. We do know that there are patients who have low light chain levels, lambda light chains of 70 or 80 milligrams per liter, who can have extensive organ damage because those light chains are so abnormal, they misfold, they're toxic to organs, they self-assemble and they deposit. And, And that's because the equation, the thermodynamics of instability really push those light chains towards misfolded oligomers and fibrils in deposits. There are other cases where large concentrations of light chain, light chains of 2,000 milligrams per liter, which you'd expect to see in someone with myeloma, can also occur in patients with light chain amyloidosis. However, in those cases, the actual equation, the thermodynamics of amyloid formation are to a large degree concentration dependent and less dependent on the physical chemical character of the light chain itself. 80% of the time, there are 10% or fewer plasma cells in the bone marrow. The median number of plasma cells in the bone marrow is about 10%, maybe a little higher. But you can see amyloid in patients who have 30, 40, 50% plasma cells in the bone marrow who don't have stigmata of myeloma, but rather have stigmata of AL, And that's in large measure due to the uh, amount of light chain that those cells are producing. At the same time, there is a philosophy among amyloid doctors that many of these clones are small, dangerous B-cell clones. Dr. Merlini, Dr. Stone wrote a a notable article in Blood about uh, 10 or 12 years ago with that title. And that's often true. And the reason for that is that the light chains made by these cells are very toxic. They're very abnormal, and therefore the factory is small, and the disease does its damage, not based on cell proliferation, but on the product that the cells make. All right, next question from the fellows. What determines why in some patients this is 
a disease of depositing in the heart. For others, it's GI. For others, it's depositing in the soft tissues. Any idea what, what drives some light chains to certain organs and not others? That's been an interest of uh, many amyloid doctors for decades. What we know is that the variable region light chain genes that code the light chains have a statistical likelihood of producing light chains that affect specific organs in certain cases. The designations that are used for these genes are a little cryptic, but they go by designations such as IGLV1-44. That variable region light chain gene on chromosome 22 is highly associated with cardiac involvement. There's another variable region light chain gene, IGLV6-57, which is almost exclusively associated with renal disease at diagnosis. Other light chains, particularly a, a kappa light chain 1-33, IGKV1-33, is heavily associated with hepatic involvement. However, we don't understand the basis for that tropism. We don't understand the physics of that process. It may be related to isoelectric point of the uh, light chain in the case of renal involvement. It may be related to charge issues in the case of cardiac involvement, but frankly, we don't know. It's not been, we, we don't have experimental models for the disease that can help us answer the question. We do know that when you create transgenic mice using genes such as this, they don't get amyloid in the same pattern that humans do. So we don't have a really good animal model. I think that there are two factors at work in addition to the tropism of the gene that is encoding the light chain. I do think that there are individual host factors at work having to do with the proteostasis network, the endowment if you will, for a protein manufacturing turnover that an individual has. It may be the case that some individuals can manage a deposition process or manage the toxic oligomers better than others. And those who can manage those things get uh, less intense disease than those whose uh, bodies can't. But that's pure hallucination at this point in time. One more question from the fellows. Just your guess, your, your estimate, how long from when a patient starts developing this clone and producing these toxic proteins, how long an interval between that and actually becoming symptomatic? Is it years? Is it months? It's years. We are, are really, really indebted to Brendan Weiss. When Brendan was at Walter Reed, he had access to the U.S. Uh, Defense Department Serum Repository. Members of the U.S. Armed Forces are bled annually and their sera are archived. He looked at patients who developed AL amyloidosis between roughly 2000 and 2010. He also looked at patients who developed myeloma. And in two separate articles, the myeloma article published in 2009 and the AL article published in 2014, what he showed was that there was clearly a precursor syndrome in AL amyloidosis, there were light chain abnormalities appreciated in patients within uh, 10 to 14 years prior to their diagnosis. 
uh, and 100% of individuals had light chain abnormalities in their serum within four years of diagnosis. What makes this so important is that 55% of the patients who progressed to light chain amyloid in this series had cardiac involvement at diagnosis. So it really emphasizes the need to check light chain levels in patients with MGUS or smoldering myeloma, as well among cardiologists to check light chain levels in young people who present with uh, symptoms of uh, diastolic dysfunction, shortness of breath, and to think of the disease. We've been really fortunate here at Tufts. Our heart failure uh, service extends throughout Massachusetts. We do more heart transplants than any other center, and therefore our cardiologists are really, really sensitive to light chain testing. In fact, we have had patients come into cardiology offices with symptoms from out of state, and the cardiologists do fat pads and light chains right in their offices at the first visit. So the word can get out. And with the increasing awareness of transthyretin amyloid among the cardiology community, I do expect in 10 years that amyloidosis itself will be a disease that will have a significant improvement in early diagnosis and will become more of a cardiac disease in some ways. Well, let me ask you a few things related to the molecular biology and then how it reflects in treatment. And then we're going to go right into talking about treatment. But, you know, for example, there's been obviously huge breakthroughs uh, in CML in, in our career by establishing the molecular biology, the BCR able. Are there some gene rearrangements or deletions or uh, other changes which then we can identify the nature of the problem in a certain patient's amyloid? And does that inform how you make decisions in terms of treatment? That's a great question, Ken. And the knowledge that we have about myeloma and the genetics of myeloma enabled us to look at AL plasma cells in the light of our knowledge of myeloma plasma cells. We do know, for example, that there are high-risk translocations, the 414, 14, 16, 16, 20, in myeloma. We know there are important deletions such as deletion 17P. And we know that about half of myelomas have hyperdiploidy and that has uh, an implication uh, for their prognosis. We know that 20% of myeloma patients have an 1114 translocation in which cyclin D1 is overexpressed. In AL amyloid, when we became able to select the plasma cells, to purify the plasma cells, as it were, with CD138 selection, and to use the myeloma probes in AL, what we learned was that almost 60% of AL cases have the 1114 translocation. And that really shouldn't be so surprising because the 1114 translocation in many instances disrupts the heavy chain locus on chromosome 14 and results in light chain secretion. So a big part of the reason why light chains are so common in AL as the paraprotein of disease uh, is because of the presence of the 1114 translocation. We also know that the high-risk translocations, 414, 1416, and the high-risk deletion 17P are very rare in the universe of AL plasma cells. One other point. Gain 1Q, abnormalities of the biggest chromosome in the chromosomal endowment, 
gain one Q occurs as an event in myeloma that is viewed by many as a high risk amplification. In AL amyloidosis, about 25% of patients at diagnosis have gained one Q. And the group in Germany assiduously evaluated their cases beginning in around 2003 and have been able to identify a role, potential role, for these translocations in the selection of treatment. What they have shown is that patients who have the 1114 translocation tend not to be that responsive to Velcade DEX, essentially. And patients who have the GAIN1Q tend not to be as responsive to oral melphalan DEX. Conversely, patients with the 1114 appear to do very well with melphalan-based therapy and with stem cell transplant. And in retrospect, we suspect that the reason why we were able to cure patients with stem cell transplant beginning in 1994 was that we didn't know this, but the 1114 was prevalent. And in many instances, the clone itself was a small clone that uh, responded very nicely to high-dose melphalan. Currently, patients who have the GAIN1Q at diagnosis can respond incredibly well and incredibly quickly to bortezomib, to Velcade-based therapies. I've seen patients with light chain levels of 1,500 get two doses of Velcade-based therapy and normalize. So these remain areas of interest for all of us, but again, the cell models that we have are myeloma cell lines for the most part. And therefore, it becomes a challenge to study the intricacies of the mechanisms of response in these cases. But there are many of us who are very interested in advancing the field in this area. So it's valuable knowledge for patients in the sense that we know patients who have less than 10% plasma cells and the 1114 at diagnosis are likely great candidates for melphalan-based stem cell transplant. Conversely, patients who have 20 or 30% plasma cells in the bone marrow with the GAIN1Q are patients who should go on to Velcade-based therapy, and the standard of uh, therapy nowadays is bortezomib, uh, cyclophosphamide, and DEX, so-called Cyborg-D. All right, let's focus on treatment. So patient comes to you now with a diagnosis of AL amyloid. What what goes into your thinking process? And I'd love to hear some examples about, you know, looking at the patient, the disease, your treatment options. How do you uh, sort through that to make a decision? And, and, And what do you see as your options for them? Sure. So we're very lucky to have a clinical trial called Andromeda open now. It's a trial in which patients who are newly diagnosed are randomized to receive either the standard chemotherapy, which is Cybor-D, cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, dex, or Cybor-D plus subcutaneous daratumumab. That's a 15 milliliter preparation that is pumped under the skin, much different than IV daratumumab because it's so quick. The trial opened in late 2017. One of the first patients whom I saw was a 72-year-old musician who was also a hiker. And he had noticed a decrement in his ability to play the full set on a Friday night. And he also had difficulty climbing the hills when he went hiking with his dog. 
He sought primary care evaluation, uh, eventually got to a cardiologist who thought he had amyloid. He came to us. We did a fat pad aspirate confirming the diagnosis of amyloidosis and also were able to identify 20% lambda-restricted plasma cells in his bone marrow. He went on to the rampant phase of the Andromeda trial, in which he got Cyborg D weekly with Daratumab weekly for the first two months. He did spectacularly well. He's never been hospitalized in the past uh, 10 months or so that he's been on the protocol and uh, has continued to function at a very high level. So I, I do think we try to enroll patients on clinical trials when there are clinical trials, if they are eligible. You know, the, the sad part is that patients are still being diagnosed late in the course of disease. I have a patient who's being treated today. She is uh, 66. She had about a two-year course of worsening shortness of breath and weight loss and had a, an admission to a hospital on Cape Cod in midsummer For heart failure, she was sent here to Tufts. Amyloid was diagnosed based on a heart biopsy. She had, again, about 30% plasma cells in her marrow. Her lambda light chain level was about 400. She was very sick. I believe she had arrhythmias that the cardiology group here felt needed to be aggressively treated. She had a defibrillator implanted. She's on amiodarone. And intrepidly, we started her on therapy. At the time we started on therapy, her light chains were about 400. She had some challenges with bortezomib. We reduced the dose in someone with such advanced heart disease. And despite only getting a milligram per meter squared, she developed the hortalia that are associated with, uh, with bortezomib, which required doxycycline treatment for about six weeks. And when that happened, we switched her to daratumumab and dexamethasone. And very slowly, her light chains have come down. She went back on bortezomib about three weeks ago because her eyes had completely healed. She has a light chain level that today is around 50. Her functional status has improved. Uh, she's preparing for Christmas. But as you can guess, she's not going to normalize in terms of her overall functional status. She will still require comp compensatory therapy for her heart failure. She'll require diuretics. She's still on amiodarone, but she feels much better. And, you know, that's a classic story of the modern era, given the fact that we have two great drugs in bortezomib and daratumumab. I'll ask you a question that I think sometimes patients ask. Uh, is this a curable disease? Well, we have several patients who are out over 20 years from their treatment. And in certain instances, the answer is yes. In those patients who have the more proliferative clones, those patients who present with 20%, 30%, 40% plasma cells at diagnosis, it can behave a little more like myeloma. And for that reason, in the modern era, it's our view that minimal residual disease testing is going to need to be incorporated into our algorithm for treating patients with light chain amyloid. Indeed, the disease is marrow-based. We don't have to worry as much about imaging or about extramedullary disease in light chain amyloid. And therefore, I do think 
the approach to amyloid is going to be modified, given the drugs that are in the pipeline, like AMG420, which is a bispecific antibody against BCMA. I think that agent is going to be extremely active in light chain amyloidosis, for example. So our goal will become not only complete response, but also MRD negativity. And MRD negativity will translate, I believe, into some cures. The cure rate now is very small, but there are patients, as I've said, who remain disease-free with organ improvement, who normalize their renal function, who in some instances normalize their cardiac status. And I think the future is very bright, provided that the uh, pharmaceutical companies and investigators don't give up on the disease. So along the lines of hopefully seeing improvement in, in patients' quality of life and function, even if you can get rid of the clone that's causing the problem, there is still already deposition in organs, uh, end organs. Is there a way to get rid of amyloid, either to dissolve it or to uh, chelate it? Or what's new in that field? So there have been several developments in that area. I am not entirely convinced that any of them will translate to a significant clinical benefit. There was a monoclonal antibody in major clinical trials that was an anti-amyloid antibody. When the trials were evaluated earlier this year, they were shown to be uh, not beneficial, and therefore the clinical development of that monoclonal antibody has stopped. A two-drug regimen that was used to mobilize amyloid from the tissues, it actively mobilized amyloid from the tissues in some instances. However, when they took the drug into patients who had cardiac amyloid, they, they saw no benefit. Indeed, and, and one of the patients developed systemic vasculitis, which led the company to discontinue development of that approach in late summer of 2018. There's currently a company, they have a monoclonal antibody, KL-101, which was tested in phase one, two study by Suzanne Lynch at Columbia. The monoclonal antibody is somewhat promising, but it's not entirely clear to me that the patients will have a significant clinical benefit by removing amyloid because the level of light chain involvement could be minimal, but it could be enough over time to feed the beast of amyloid in the tissues. And also because the side effects of uh, macrophage or giant cell removal of amyloid could be pretty significant with respect to fibrosis and scarring. So it's not clear to me that there will be a beneficial approach based on uh, dissolving or absorbing amyloid deposits. What symptoms do patients present with? What should make us think of amyloid? So the, the obvious things are the rarer things such as macroglossia, and unexplained ecchymoses. The more common things are dyspneon exertion, which is unexplained, and also decreased exercise tolerance, which is unexplained, hepatomegaly, which is unexplained, and uh, proteinuria, which is mostly albuminuria in the setting of preserved renal function. Those are among the most common presenting symptoms. Patients also have a likelihood, perhaps as high as 30% of having had carpal tunnel two to five years previously. In men, erectile dysfunction, 
that occurs perhaps as long as two years prior to the onset of amyloid symptoms is also associated with the pattern of complaints at the time of diagnosis. So I have to say this has been a really interesting episode for me. I've learned reading a lot of your articles in the last few weeks and having a chance to talk has has really taught me a lot. So um, I want to thank Dr. Ray Comenzo for taking the time to speak with us and to the audience also for joining us. Ray, thanks again. Oh, it was a privilege, Ken, and thank the LLS for the opportunity to do this podcast. Thank you. For additional Leukemia and Lymphoma Society resources, and continuing education activities, visit www.lls.org CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact the LLS Information Resource Center at 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources, as well as to connect them with our clinical trial support center nurses for personalized assistance in finding an appropriate trial and throughout the entire clinical trial process, providing an additional resource to the healthcare team. So again, we encourage uh, healthcare professionals and patients to reach out to LLS, which has been an incredible resource to my patients and also to my own family, in fact. So thanks. Thank you to LLS, and we encourage patients and and caregivers to reach out. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.